Hello and welcome to a special Anzac Day on your community station 103.13 BR FM and uh, throughout the day we will have special programs for you to mark this special day beginning with a look at how Gippsland responded in World War One, but we'll start with Raven and the Dove and their song A Bugle Calling. Mist in the valley, I miss home. Horse hooves on the street, I miss home. And the lyre birds sing, I miss home. Deciduous trees turn the ground to gold. River flows free, I miss home. Down from snowy country, Past the butter factory, miss home. Hub calls last drinks, and we roll on home. I write my folks, I'll be home soon. I'm lying, hopes are fading. I miss Across the wooden bridge, I miss home. Hodges, Rogers, Rabbit, I miss home. The clouds and I in the sky above. Hey, bells, starting I miss home. Mom's biscuits on the window, I miss home. Whistle blows at the timber. I miss home. Feeling my hometown deep inside my bones. Ankle deep in my brother's blood. We're freezing. It won't stop raining. I miss home. One last time through the valley I am flying A bugle calling Mist in the valley I miss home The bluff on a summer sea Dad's fresh brewed coffee. I miss home. The green grass under my feet. I miss home. The screech of the cockies. One last time through the valley. I hear the lyrebirds singing. I miss home. 
Alles hoch, alles hoch, alles Raven and the Dove from East Gippsland. Welcome to this Anzac Day special program. I'm Paul Strickland, and recently I spoke with history professor Eric Eklund from Federation University, who's made a special study of Gippsland during and around World War I. We started by discussing the local attitude to the war when it broke out, specifically how Gippsland has responded to enlistment. Now, you asked me about the enlistment rates. Um, now, they, of course, change over time, and it's, you know, one of the complex stories of the war is that the rates, of course, change according to what the home population uh, begin to know and understand about the realities of war. But really prior to those first casualty lists coming back and being published in Australian newspapers from the Gallipoli campaign, and that was really uh, published in the papers in June, July 1915, there wasn't... Uh, a broad understanding of the extent to which war would lead to such extensive casualties. So the initial recruits were enthusiastic, they were overwhelmingly young single men between the ages of 25, uh, sorry 18 and 25 and for many of them it was uh, either a great adventure or uh, perhaps um, relief from some unemployment because there were some economic reasons to to enlist as well. Okay, so both in the uh, uh, recruits and um, possibly in the population a little bit, it sounds like there was a certain level of naivety about uh, both about the process of war, if that's a phrase, um, uh, but also about what would be achieved out of it. Sure, yes, and even even many of the the. The, uh, the commanding officers, you know, shared that naivety as well and people might have heard of, of the common assumption that, it, you know, we'd be home by Christmas and many of the, the British recruits um, certainly had that, that idea that it would be a bit of an adventure um, and that war would pass um, quite quickly. Um, and that was uh, partly related to previous conflicts which hadn't necessarily gone on for that long. We'd had a few crises and standoffs in the Balkans. Uh, Franco-Prussian War had, had lasted uh, a year or two. Um, and so there was that idea that, that war would be over quickly. And of course, what you and I know and what the listeners know is that it was four long years and some of the horrors that would be experienced were were really even yet to be imagined in August 1914. So uh, what sort of proportion of our population, and I'm particularly thinking given the, the age group that we're talking about, of the, the workforce in, in Gippsland was engaged or became recruited mm. uh, and was therefore taken out of, of our economy? Yes, the, the initial uh, parameters for recruitment were fairly specific. Uh, men had to be over five foot six, 
uh, and there was a strong preference for between the ages of 18 and 25 and uh, quite a number of young single men enlist during that first phase because they fit perfectly into that demographic. As the war progressed, the um, parameters were slowly uh, relaxed. So um, as uh, it was more difficult to maintain the numbers and there was more ambition from the uh, first AIF to increase the size of the force, then uh, eventually the height requirement goes down to 5.2 uh, and the age, uh, the top age goes right up to 35, 40. By the end of the war, um, recruitment could include men up to the age of 50, uh, which is, you know, incredible expansion. In terms of the enlistment rates, Gippsland hits the national average. So around 33% of men between the ages of 18 and 40 enlist, or at least they try to enlist. Not everyone is successful because a number of men are deemed to be, you know, medically unsuited. Um, and there's lots of stories about men heading from recruiting station to recruiting station, trying multiple times, even going interstate, going to Sydney or Adelaide to, to try and get through the recruitment process. Um, but, you know, that's probably another story. So in terms of the re recruitment enlistment rates, we're looking at around one in three of those men eligible uh, actually make an effort to, to enlist. And at the time, of course, uh, whilst I guess agriculture is still important in Gippsland, at that time it was really a prime uh, motivator for the whole economy really wasn't it and so therefore that's a significant part of the workforce. Yes yeah, so here's where um, particularly a lot of historians are looking at the relationship between the home front and the war experience and you know we can factor in well what was the regional economy like in 1914, 1915 and did that affect enlistment rates. So Gippsland is a very particular place it's a big region um, as listeners would know, um, it's about the size of Belgium. So, you know, it, uh, it has huge dispersed population, small population centres. You know, the biggest towns, um, Sale, Bansdale, um, some of the South Gippsland towns like Currumburra and Wonthaggy are not much more than 3,000 people. So it's a, these are small communities lots of face-to-face -face interactions, lots of people know one another. And in terms of the economy, very strongly based on resources, uh, dairy, uh, fishing, timber in particular. Not much cultivated land in Gippsland. You know, if you look around, it's, it's not really that suitable uh, for, for, for wheat, for example, or mixed farming. Much better to run sheep or cattle or, or have a dairy farm or maybe um, engage in the timber industry. Some of those industries were doing better than others in 1914. 1914 wasn't a great harvest year, so there may have been some on the land that might have been attracted to enlisting because the economic hit wasn't so high. But we've also got evidence from Gippsland and other parts of regional Victoria where farming families actually make a decision to hold back um, 
say young young sons or or even younger husbands on in some cases uh, until they can actually get the harvest in so there's often a bit of a, a bump in recruitment rates after the summer harvest 1914 and after the summer harvest 1915 very difficult decisions for these families to make because they're, they're going to take a big uh, initial economic hit because they've lost uh, a worker off the family family farm. Uh, now, you could say, well, that's going to be offset by the six shillings a day, which was the standard you know, um, wage for, for a private in the AIF. Uh, but that money doesn't turn up immediately. You know, and you, you're going to lose momentum on the farm. The, the, the fences are going to go down. The, you know, the, the quality of your, your stock is, is going to decline. So there's all those issues around farm management and farm maintenance which are going to suffer if you send off a number of your sons or a husband heads off to, to recruit. So really complex, difficult questions for, for families to, to try and answer. And also, I think, speaks to a little bit of that naivety uh, with the notion that um, we can hold this person back from going to war till after the harvest um, and perhaps thinking, and they'll probably be back for the next harvest, so that'll be okay. Do, do you think that might have been going on? Yeah, yeah. Again, even in 1915, there was a hope that perhaps the, the war might might not stretch out for another three years certainly there, there was no general sense that it would run for another three years as it did it's extraordinary to think that some of these men who enlisted in say uh, before Christmas 1914 um, didn't get home if they came home at all um, from the battlefield experience didn't get home until 1919 so even though we had the armistice in, in November 1918 there was a, a shipping shortage of course and just the challenge, the logistical challenge of getting all of those men home to Australia and New Zealand and other parts of the world in a short space of time was just a, a massive one. So there was a lot of talk in the army about the so-called Anzac leave, uh, the men who served and fought with distinction on Gallipoli. Um, you know, Billy Hughes, uh, the Prime Minister from 1915-16, had promised them some leave and and it never really eventuated so the idea of getting back to Australia for leave was a, a rare occurrence uh, so that the only real uh, returned soldiers the home front saw from 1916 were men who'd been medically discharged. Now that was a confronting moment and that's when some of this enthusiasm uh, and uh, naivety about war really starts to, to be shifted because uh, the home front population are seeing men with with you know missing limbs or men who 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 have clearly have significant psychological and or medical conditions and that's um, that's a, in a sense we get to that turning point around I, I think it probably is around 1916 the middle of 1916 when when we see that shift towards a, a much grimmer uh, prospect. Now when I was a young man, I carried me pack And I lived a free life on the rover From the Murray's green basin to the dusty outback 
Well, I waltzed by Matilda all over Then in 1915 my country said, son It's time you stop rambling, there's work to be done So they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun and they marched me away to the war And the band played waltzing Matilda As the ship pulled away from the quay And amidst all the cheers The flag waving and tears We sailed off for Galilee And how well I remember that terrible day How our blood stained the sand and the water And of how in that hell that they called Sula Bay We were butchered like lambs at the slaughter Johnny Turk, he was white and Primed himself well He showered us with bullets And he rained us with shell And in five minutes flat He'd blown us all to hell Nearly blew us right back to Australia But the band played waltzing Matilda when we stopped to bury our slain How oh, we buried ours And the Turks buried theirs Then we started all over again And those that were left Well, we tried to survive In that mad world of blood death and fire and for ten weary weeks I kept myself alive though around me the corpses piled higher then a big turkey shell knocked me arse overhead and when I woke up in me hospital bed and saw what it had done I wished I was dead Never knew there was worse things than dying For I'll go no more waltzing Matilda All round the green bush far and free To Humpton and pegs A man needs both legs No more waltzing Matilda for me So they gathered the crippled the wounded the maimed and they shipped us back home to Australia The armless the legless 
the blind, the insane, those proud, wounded heroes of Suvla. And as our ship sailed into circular game, I looked at the place where me legs used to be, and thank Christ there was nobody waiting for me to grieve, to mourn, and to pity. But the band. Played waltzing Matilda as they carried us down the gangway, but nobody cheered. They just stood and stared. Then they turned on their faces away, and so now every April. I sit on me porch and I watch the parade pass before me, and I see my old comrades how proudly they march, reviving old dreams of past glories, and the old men march slowly. All bones stiff and sore. The tired old heroes from a forgotten war, and the young people ask, what are they marching for? And I ask myself the same question. But the band plays waltzing Matilda. And the old men still answer the call, but as year follows year, more old men disappear. Someday no one will march there at all. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda. Who come a waltzing Matilda with me? And their ghosts may be heard as they march by that billabong. Who come a waltzing Matilda with me? John Manor, Brent Miller, good guys. Thanks for coming. Good night to you all. Eric Bogle, of course, and his song, and the band played Walsing Matilda, expressing some of that grim prospect that people started to realise as the war started to drag on. And we're speaking here to Professor Eric Eklund, who's a history professor from Federation University. War has complex effects on the economy, so you, you have this labour market dislocation, and if you think about the Gippsland economy, uh, strongly rural based in 1914 lots of um, lots of mechanical physical labor on a farm for example or, or in any public works or in the shires or anywhere um, so there's lots of men employed 
doing mechanical work, physical work. And um, of course, those many of those workers, as, as we've seen, perhaps 30% uh, in the prime of their lives, you know, strong, strong young men uh, enlist. So that's a big hit to the economy, which is strongly based on physical labour. The complexity here is that war also generates huge demand, particularly Australia uh, was, you know, the great supplier of, of wool and and, and wheat and, and a whole range of products for the empire. So while we have this initial dislocation, we have um, on the economic front, on the demand front, huge increase for Australian products. So there's a lot of attempts to innovate and to uh, mechanise uh, um, transport, for example, uh, and uh, to, to reduce the labour demand. In the First World War, there isn't so much of a reliance on women's labour to, to bring them into the paid workforce. There are a couple of occasions where, where women clearly step in in the transport sector and on the trams and, and the trains, etc. Um, but that's much more of a Second World War phenomena. In terms of women in war and the home front and the Great War, it's much more around um, the incredible sort of activity that flows into the to the volunteer effort, the effort to underpin um, a, a, a fighting force um, that's that's overseas. If you look through the old newspapers, and you know we had 30, 35 newspapers in Gippsland, you know during this period, and they are an incredible source of information. Then you you know you can quickly lose track of every single. Um, War Comfort Fund, Red Cross, um, Lord Mayor, Lady Mayoress's Relief Fund. Um, many of the schools ran ran their own um, charity drives, and school children were were really strongly brought into the war effort, um, both through sort of um, you know patriotic uh, new textbooks, but also through doing odd jobs and raising money for the war. So there's it's almost like the whole community mobilised for, for war and to support the war effort. Uh, and later on, uh, this is theorised as the idea of total war, is that the, these aren't professional armies um, standing off against one another and trying to kill each other. They're whole societies uh, arranged against and fighting against other societies. And the concept of total war is, is that civilians are are brought into the equation, you know, are, are, are part of the effort. Probably the most prominent organisation in Victoria and, and very strong throughout Gippsland was the Red Cross. Um, and this was originally a, a British organisation set up in the 1870s. And then Lady Munro Ferguson, who was the wife of our then Governor-General, decides to set up an Australian branch straight away in August 1914 and women had um, made an effort to volunteer they were trying to volunteer in all kinds of armed services in non-combatant roles and typically the army um, just said no so they were very frustrated by that so the Red Cross gave them a, a, a huge outlet to begin to do this voluntary work um, right across right across the region.
Turning back to, to the farm, uh, is there much stories about the women running, having to take over and run, run farms? Yeah, so families adjusted as best they could. So you had um, women stepping up and becoming the sort of farm manager, if you like. Now, sometimes that was a continuation of roles that they were already playing. Um, but other times the, it was something that was brand new. We also have um, uncles or um, other uh, relatives coming to, to help out. There's some really interesting letters from the Whiteside family who lived in the Officer area, Officer Pakenham area, and they had an orchard and some cattle in that area. And um, uh, one of the Whitesides uh, enlisted and he would get lots of letters from home. And, and, and I think, again, we should emphasise that there's huge amounts of information flowing back between the, the men at war in theatres of war and the home front all the time. Postcards, letters, um, newspapers are being mailed overseas. You know, so there's huge exchange. Uh, and um, uh, Whiteside gets letters from home which gives him an update. How's the orchard going? Or you've got a new cow. Even photographs of the, of the new cow, for example. So he was very interested in progress on the orchard, progress on the farm. He wanted to know how things were going. And then he served uh, in Gallipoli, and then he went to France and served in many of the major battles fought by the first AIF in France. And a remarkable sort of measure of, of his commitment and, and service. Uh, but even by 1917, he's writing home saying, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've done my bit, you know. And I perfectly understandable. If you'd served for three or four years through those theatres of war, you, you might reasonably expect some Anzac leave or, or, or some home front leave. And he, he kept asking if he could get home. And he was very disappointed that he wasn't able to come home. And one of his concerns was, how was the orchard going? How, the far, how was the farm faring? Uh, I can't really, you know, keep in contact on the other side of the world. So there were a lot of uh, difficult family decisions involved, both uh, personally and economically. That particularly larger families had to make, you know, would they allow all of their sons, for example, to enlist? And, and some, some of those young men just enlisted anyway. Um, if you're under 21, you technically had to get the consent of your parents. So there was that barrier, uh, but some, particularly farming families said well to to certain sons well we'll let you enlist but we can't let all of the sons enlist because the farm would you know would just simply not function and if you think about the long-term implications of those kind of decisions it's a very difficult burden for 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 men to bear you know some some enlisting in what was seen to be the you know the most significant event in the early 20, 20th century uh, and others um, being discouraged or dissuaded or unable to if they were medically unfit. You know, a lot of those men carry that for the for the rest of their lives. And, you know, whether you enlist or you didn't, it still had really significant consequences for you and your family moving into the post-war years. The attitude to the war changed uh, considerably over time just simply out of the, the, the length of it. Yeah, Look, the, the volunteer effort continues, you know, and there's still huge amounts of, of money being raised in, in very small towns. 
huge amounts of material being sent, um, uh, comfort-based material. So, you know, socks, um, you know, biscuits, um, you know, all kinds of things that, that you could make, but also uh, the funds were used to, to purchase additional supplies that would go off to the, to the troops, and they were known as, as comfort. That continues, but we do begin to see uh, a bit of war weariness creep in, uh, and of course we have the two conscription referenda in 1916, October 1916, and uh, Prime Minister Hughes uh, attempts to make military service compulsory, and uh, that is narrowly lost, but it's oh, across the national level. But in Gippsland, of course, there's a strong and very broad coalition in favour of conscription. So Gippslanders vote um, something like two to one in favour of conscription. And there's a sort of a disappointment that the nation votes against that. Now, Hughes is unhappy. He loses that referenda, but he tries again in December 1917, so almost a year later. We have another conscription referenda, and these are very divisive um, debates. They're repeated, and they also divide communities to some extent on sectarian lines. So the the sort of Protestant well-to-do establishment, and many other Protestant churches are are firmly behind the notion of conscription and uh, basis of imperial loyalty, and. The Catholic community are also, of course, many of the men are enlisting and, re- and going to recruitment stations. But after events in Ireland in April 1916, there's an uprising in, in Dublin that's quite brutally repressed by the British. Many of the Irish Catholic hierarchy, including in Australia, begin to say, well, you know, is, is this a just war? And in 1915, 1916, 1917, asking that sort of question, you know, is it right that we will uh, send our men without choice into war? Is, is that a reasonable thing to do? Is that an ethically, religiously reasonable thing to do? And Archbishop Mannix in Melbourne calls the war a sordid little trade war. And, and that really, you know, shocks the establishment because criticism of the war is muted but also strongly repressed. There's censorship through the War Precautions Act. People can't go and demonstrate for the most part. So we've got these pictures of two different kinds of Gippsland. One which is strongly supporting of, of, of conscription and working hard to raise money uh, and the other which um, is going through these very divisive conscription debates, um, these two referenda. So that certainly is a challenge um, for some of our communities, particularly where there's a strong Catholic congregation. Uh, Some of the the Catholic bishops in Gippsland make some statements which could be construed as critical of the war effort. Um, They're still very patriotic and many of them, including Catholics, support the war, but part of the issue is they don't support compulsory conscription. So they argue that it should be a choice. So those debates play out here. We have some communities where the no vote, so no to conscription, 
almost gets a majority. Places like Walhalla, you know, the gold mining town, some of the timber towns, because the the unions were very wary of compulsory conscription because it it felt they argued that it was a a form of slavery. But many of the bigger towns were strongly in favour of conscription, and that's a real challenge for the Gippsland community. Well, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside and rest for a while neath the warm summer sun? I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done. I see by your gravestone you are only 19 when you join the great fallen in 1916. I hope you died well and I hope you died clean. Our young Willie McBride was it slow and obscene Did he beat the drums slowly Did he play the fife slowly Did they sound the death march As they lowered you down And did the band play the last post and chorus Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest Or a sweetheart behind In some faithful heart Is your memory enshrined Although you died back in 1916 In that faithful heart Are you forever 19? Or are you a stranger Without even a name? Enclose them forever behind the glass frame In an old photograph torn, battered and stained And faded to yellow in the brown leather frame Did he beat the drum slowly? Did he play the fine slowly? Did I sound the death march? As they lowered you down Did the band play the last post and chorus And did the pipes play the flowers of the forest The sun, now it shines on the green fields of France There's a warm summer breeze Makes the red poppies dance And look how the sun Shines from under the clouds There's no gas, no barbed wire There's no gun firing now But here in this graveyard It's still no man's land The countless white crosses Stand mute in the sand no man's blind indifference to his fellow man To a whole generation that were butchered and damned 
Do beat the drums slowly there they play the five slowly the day sound the death march as they lower you down and did the band play the last post and chorus to the pipes play the flowers of the fall I am Willie, my bride, I can't help wonder why To those that lie here, know why did they die And did they believe when they answered the call Did they really believe that this war would end war Well, the sorrow, the suffering, the glory the pain, the killing and dying were all done in vain. For young Willie McBride, it all happened again, and again and again and again and again. Did they beat the drums slowly, did they play the five slowly, did they sound the dead march? As they lowered you down There the band play The last post and chorus Did the pipes Play the flowers of the forest Did they beat the drums slowly Did they play the five slowly Did they sound the death march As they lowered you down did the band play the last post in chorus? And did the pipes play the flowers of the fall? The Furies and their version of the Eric Bogle song, Green Fields of France. And we're speaking with Professor Eric Eklund about the impact of the First World War in Gippsland. Which leads us to the the eventual end of the war, obviously initially greeted with great (laughs) joy, I guess, um, and relief. Um, But then what happened? Yeah, so um, there was uh, uh, parades and festivities in all of the Gippsland towns once the armistice was, was announced. So there was a tremendous sense of relief and it transcended classes and it transcended religion. Um, people were were welcoming of the process, uh, but then we had to, of course, deal with getting the troops home, uh, which just took so long because of these logistical challenges that that we mentioned. And many of those men didn't return uh, until early 1919, sometimes even even later. So the armistice is 11th of November 1918, and they're still taking you know months to order to organise a, a transport and get home. There was a debate starting in the region about what would post-war Gippsland look like. And there was, uh, one of the phrases was, you know, we don't want to be neglected Gippsland for any longer. And neglected Gippsland was mentioned many times. So this sense that Gippsland had a lot of natural resources that needed to be developed. And that was the overwhelming sort of idea about economic development of the time. So lots of new public works were planned, um, new dams, uh, etc. 
Um, also, the idea that there would should be some reward for service. So um, the repatriation schemes were set up to uh, encourage men, for example, to move onto the land, take up soldier settlement schemes, and they are dotted throughout the Gippsland region, particularly central Gippsland, south Gippsland as well. Um, and then the whole uh, system of medical care as well, the repatriation hospitals to try and offer some ongoing medical care for the men who, who and women who served as well. There were Gippsland women serving overseas as nurses and as voluntary aid detachments or VADs. Um, and the whole system is set up in a very short space of time. Uh, so post-war brings a lot of challenges, a lot of change, a lot of movement of people. Um, there's some hope for a, a better future, uh, but also uh, lots of difficulties. The, the whole question about supporting men after a lengthy military service was, was in a sense, uh, new ground for, for state authorities after the, the First World War. Uh, so there were uh, repatriation schemes, repatriation hospitals set up, purpose-built or sometimes converted places. Uh, so this was very much the cutting edge of medical science at the time and, and new challenges as well for psychology and counselling to, to assist men to sort of make that adjustment back into civilian society. Um, and so historians have often talk, talked about the long war, so the idea that the war really, really didn't finish in, at, at the armistice. For, for many, it continued on. The consequences were ongoing. Of course, for all of Europe, it's complete upheaval and we have redrawing of boundaries and empires are crumbling. You know, there's a, a, the Bolsheviks have their revolution, etc. But for individuals as well, there's that, that question of that journey back into their communities and, and making that adjustment. And for there, the, the stories are, are incredibly diverse. There's some men that come home who prosper. There's others that never talk about the war ever again. Um, there are some who clearly have um, ongoing medical as well as psychological issues that, are, that arise from their war experience. It, it's not as though you can put people in that situation for all those years and imagine that that once the war is over, then you know medically they'll be fine. You know, there's tremendous strain on on their bodies and their minds, and that's ha that has to be managed um, for for decades, really, um, if you if you think about it. So it's very much a long war. You know, the cost of war uh, is not just in the casualty rates, you know, which which we can we can briefly mention, but also in the ongoing um, legacy of war, if you like. As even now, we are still learning um, with the, the whole emphasis now on, on trying to understand and and manage uh, what we now know as PTSD. Mm. Um, at, at that time, I guess it didn't even have a name, really. If you look at um, uh, one of the other topics that I've you know done some work on over the years is the Great Depression. And if you look at a lot of the unemployed men uh, in cities and towns throughout Australia, there's quite a few return soldiers within that group. So you could say that that group were a group that within the return soldier cohort that um, first w were rocked by the big jump in unemployment 
uh, many of those men hadn't been gainfully or fully employed right throughout the 20s. So, so there is that impact. Um, there were attempts to try and give returned soldiers uh, special access to jobs in the public service or in the police, and you know, to some extent that works. But those men and their communities, they, as I see it, they they carry the burden of war. The state helps to some to some extent, but it's very much brought back to the community level and the family level, how you manage someone that's been through that kind of remarkable uh, experience. So in some ways the raw statistics hide a lot of that uh, uh, ongoing damage of the war, but we should at least cover, we should at least mention those raw statistics and how they impacted on our community. Yes, yes. So contemporaries talked about the lost generation. Um, and, you know, if we think about the men who, who enlisted from, from Gippsland, uh, it, again, the historians from different areas have picked up slightly different rates, but we're probably looking at about 20% of those men who successfully enlisted didn't make it home. And that's you know, if you're ever lucky enough to visit some of the battlefield cemeteries on the Gallipoli Peninsula or Ypres uh, in, in Belgium, the Menin Gate, then you'll see uh, many of those, those, those men, their names listed, a lot of Gippslanders on the Menin Gate, for example. And, you know, we start to see the, you know, the, the real cost of war and the way in which that, those, that demographic of young men were, you know, just so incredibly impacted by the loss of mates, the loss of um, fathers, family, friends, etc., relatives. Uh, a huge impact, which again, the communities, they somehow carry on. Um, they bear that cost and they carry on into the 20s, but it's, it's um, a legacy which you know is ongoing for many decades. That's Professor Eric Eklund from Federation University and we've been speaking about the impact of World War I on Gippsland. I'm Paul Strickland. Stay with your community station for more special Anzac Day programming.